to see you guys here. We're going to be in the book of Matthew as we continue to move verse by verse through the book. The kingdom prayer, this is the famous, what we know as the Lord's Prayer. So why don't you go ahead and, uh, in fact, you're, you're not going to need your Bible at the moment because we're going to read it up on the screen. Why don't you stand, if you're able to stand with us. Matthew chapter 6. There's a lot going on out there, isn't there? All right. So there, when you walk into a church like this, there's probably represented multiple versions of Bibles that you hold. The reason I want us to read this up on the screen is we're going to read from the same version. It's the New American Standard Bible, updated in 1995, the only truly inspired. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But this will keep us on the same page. Otherwise, we might be a little bit off with one another. All right. Now, before we do this, this is going to be our reading as we normally would do it and our opening prayer. By the way, you don't have to pray always with your eyes closed. I don't know that there's a verse in the Bible that says close your eyes when you pray. And if you're driving, it's not a good thing to do anyway, right? Which probably should be a lot of when we are praying is when we're driving. All right, so here's the text, we're going to read it out loud together. We'll read it kind of slow. I want you to try to make it a prayer as you read it. All right? So Jesus opens it with pray then in this way. Let's begin together. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful prayer that you gave through your son. It is a wonderful prayer. It is something that's been prayed for 2,000 years now. And it's been prayed by the, the church around the world, starting right here in northern Israel and moving all over the globe. We're so grateful for the kingdom prayer that you gave us. I pray you'll give us understanding into what it means, how we can pray it effectively, and how we can glorify you in our prayer life. I pray that you'd bless the time we have in front of us, that you direct it, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The kingdom prayer. So if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church as I did, uh, this became a very uh, familiar prayer to me. Uh, I mentioned to you last week that it became familiar because often I was given to pray it multiple times after I confessed what I'd been up to in that week. And uh, if you have a Roman Catholic background, you will know that the priest would often, for the sake of absolution, give you perhaps what was called the Our Father. And uh, of course, there's a beauty in the uh, recitation of the prayer and even in repeating the prayer. There's nothing wrong with repeating the prayer. Let me just say that uh, repetition is a key to learning. And there are things that are repeated in our Bibles. One of the Psalms continues to say, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed the same thing three times. Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Paul prayed about the thorn in his flesh three times that the Lord would take it away. So repetition in and of itself is not a bad thing. What Jesus warned us about is meaningless repetition. And I mentioned to you last week that, well, if you have meaningful repetition, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus showed us how not to pray in verses five through eight. As we move through the Sermon on the Mount, we're moving through the book of Matthew. He said, six, five, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites or the people who put on an act. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men or by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do or the unbelievers or pagans do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then how to pray. This begs the question, if this is how we shouldn't pray, how should we pray? And Jesus answers that by saying, pray then in this way. And so this is another way that we seek first the kingdom of God. I mentioned to you when we opened the book of Matthew, we've called this overall the gospel of the kingdom, and we are called to pursue the kingdom, pray the kingdom, pursue the kingdom, and preach the kingdom. This particular message is about how to pray the kingdom. What does our prayer life look like? What should be the trajectory of my prayers? Uh, how should I orient my heart in terms of the way that I pray? The disciples were watching Jesus pray, and Luke has a form of this prayer. You don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, it's in Luke chapter 1. It came about while Jesus, I'm sorry, Luke 11, 1, while Jesus was praying, and he did often pray, in a certain place after he had finished one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, Luke 11, 1, just as John also taught his disciples. And so it was Jesus' own prayer life that kind of sparked the question from one of the disciples. And then Jesus went into what we know as the Lord's Prayer. This is technically not the Lord's Prayer. You could say it's the disciples' prayer. I think it's best maybe called the kingdom prayer because it does include your kingdom come and then it has what's called a doxology at the end. We'll talk about whether or not that's an original doxology because some of you have it in brackets and it's not in some of the other uh, versions of the Bible. But it, it is a prayer for your kingdom come and then you, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The focus of the prayer is certainly on the kingdom of God. Some people have said you could call this the disciples' prayer because Jesus would never pray, forgive me my debts, because he didn't have any debts to forgive. So, but he could have prayed other aspects of this prayer, and there's no doubt that Jesus did pray. He often slipped away to pray. In fact, his own prayer life sparked the question from the disciples. You'll notice... Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9, pray then in this way. If you have a new King James, it says, in this manner, therefore pray. In this manner does not mean praying only this words. It means to pray after this manner or in this way or in the following manner. People often reduce this prayer 
to empty recitation. We don't want to do that. We certainly don't want to repeat it just to repeat it because we're start trying to hit some mark that some man told us we got to do it this number of times. But also there is evidence in church history for what's called liturgical prayers. And that is that prayers would be prayed by the corporate assembly, uh, maybe even every time they would gather. For example, if you think about the Jewish history, the Jewish roots of our faith, in Deuteronomy 6, the Jews had a prayer. We know it as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know that the, the blessing that we all enjoy, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord be gracious to you, make his face shine upon you and give you shalom, is a prayer that was prayed regularly in the synagogue. So reciting a prayer in a liturgical, repetitious style is not a bad thing. Uh, France, in his commentary, says, Christian tradition has always found the words of this prayer suitable either for repetition or as a template for more extended prayer or as a basis for thinking and teaching about prayer and its priorities, close quote. So France says you could repeat the prayer and it would be very meaningful to do so, or the prayer that Jesus gives could be a kind of a bullet point for our Western minds to keep us on track to focus on God and his will and his name and then our needs and in probably in that order. So for example, if you were to pray, our Father, you are in heaven, hallowed be your name, that might be a template where then you would say something like this, Lord, may I glorify you as I live this week or live this day. May you be sanctified in my heart as Lord. May I treat your name as holy. So you could kind of you know, springboard from the basic, uh, you know, idea there or the principle that Jesus laid down. Either way, I think it's acceptable to God. There's nothing wrong with repeating the prayer, nothing wrong with the rich pattern of the prayer to be one that you would use in your life. Now, the structure of the prayer, I want to uh, outline for you because I know a lot of you enjoy seeing structure before we jump into a sermon. So let me just say that the prayer starts with an address. Who, who is it that we're praying to? We'll get, excuse me, get to that in a minute. And then there's three petitions about God and his kingdom and three petitions about us. So the address, three and three to God and about us, and then a final doxology, which kind of caps it off. That's where we're headed. Let's start with the address. The address is our Father. You will see no singular pronouns ever in this prayer. This is a corporate prayer where it is directed towards a group of disciples or a group of citizens of the kingdom of God. This is not about my Father, although He is my Father, it is our Father. It is a, there's a corporate mindset to the prayer. And this is a good thing, I think, because we, we find strength in the corporate setting. Our Father, plural, reflects the Aramaic uh, vocative of Abba. So though the New Testament is written in Greek and the word for Father in Greek is pater, P-A-T-E-R, by extension, that's where they get the idea of the Pope, by the way, what they would call... Catholics would call the Holy Father, Pater. But here, Jesus would have prayed it, Abba. Abba, if you look at the original Hebrew word for father, is just simply two letters. 
It's an A, it's an ox head that is kind of turned that looks like our A, and it, and it points to the strong leader of a house, like strength of an ox. The strong leader, and then it's a B, it's the bait, so it's ob, just think of AB going from right to left, and it would be the strong leader of the bait, which is the house. So father in Hebrew means the strong leader of the house. If you walk out the word Abba, it really means the one who is my source, my leader. In fact, scholars would say that when you say Abba, father, you are saying you are my God. Just like David would say the Lord is my shepherd. You are saying you're my father, but you are our father collectively. We could pray that perhaps if we were praying with our family or in a corporate church setting, that kind of thing. So the word father is Abba, and I believe that it's just fine if you would want to address God as Abba, because that is literally the Aramaic term. And that, that's a little bit more of a familial kind of, a, more, maybe a more of a, a close way to say uh, we might say it daddy. Maybe that's a little too loose for what the Hebrew is after here, the Aramaic. But it, it is a, certainly a word of familial trust. Uh, we are God's beloved children, Ephesians 5.1. God so loved us, he gave his son. And so while we come to God in reverence, we come to God as our father, our Abba. Now I know for some of you sitting here, your only connection to the idea of a father is going to be your earthly father, most likely. And some of you have a really good experience with a father. For some of you, your dad's still here. Maybe you're sitting next to your father. And he's been a great example for you. He's been a provider. He loves you. He, uh, you know, sets an example for your family and all of that. And that's wonderful. And for those of us who have had that situation, it's pretty easy to address God as father, knowing we move from the lesser to the greater. Some of you have had a really bad experience with a father. I've told you guys before, my father left our family when I was four. I never saw him again. I found out that my dad died on the internet on one of those ancestry websites. Did talk to him on the phone one time in about three decades. So my idea of a father might be a little bit, you know, might be a little harder for me. But I think all of us, even if you had a negative experience with a father, we know what an ideal father would look like, right? We, we have a notion of it. Even if we had a bad experience, we, we intuitively know what it would look like to be right. So Jesus, moving from the lesser to the greater, says these words. Look at Matthew 7, 11, just right ahead of us. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? So when we address God as our father, he is our father collectively as the citizens of the kingdom. We are a family of God and we're in a privileged position because we've become children of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In fact, in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, Paul says these words. He says in Romans 8, God's not given you the spirit of fear leading to slavery again, but he's given you a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Our spirit bears witness, or his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we belong to God. 
So it is a very, very much a believer's mindset to call God Abba, to call God Father. It's a relational thing. We know him and he knows us. He is ours and we are his. We have been adopted into his family, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so all New Testament prayer that I know of, save two exceptions, is always directed to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the normal mode of prayer. Now, I don't think it's wrong to pray directly to Jesus. Jesus is God, and no doubt Jesus hears our prayers. In two cases in the New Testament, Acts 7.59, Stephen is dying. He's being martyred, hit with stones. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's a prayer to Jesus. And in Re Revelation 22.20, at the very end of the book of Revelation, John says, come, Lord Jesus, a prayer to Jesus. But outside of that, to my knowledge, there's no other prayer directed to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. Now, I've heard people pray to the Holy Spirit, and I don't have an issue with that because we serve a triune God. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all part of the Godhead, the triune nature of God. However, the normal mode of prayer is still to pray to the Father in the name of the Son or through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Son is the one that gives us access. We've been born again by the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Hold your place in Matthew. We'll come back. Let's turn over to John 16. Jesus is giving what's called the upper room discourse, John 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And he's talking about the disciples praying. And just to cut to the heart of the matter, John 16, 24, Jesus says these words. Until now, John 16, 24, You've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full, made full. 1625 of John. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Now in Jesus' grand high priestly prayer, dropping down to 17.5, just to give a, get a flavor for this, Jesus is praying. He says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself but the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then just to get one more taste of it, down to 1724 of John. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. You can see that Jesus' prayer life is to the Father. He mentions asking in his name. In the book of Acts, if you just keep going to your right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter four, the disciples have met for prayer and they're under a threat of persecution. They're told, don't speak anymore about the gospel or in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter four, just to give another example of 
some biblical prayers that we see. Look at 424 of the book of Acts. When they heard this, the threats and the uh, threat of persecution, they lifted their voices to God, Acts 424, with one accord and said, oh Lord, this will be, it'll be obvious that they're addressing the Father. It is to you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It is you. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. You can see they're addressing the father. They're talking about the son against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Just some other things for your notes. Uh, In Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. Then he goes on to give a beautiful prayer. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask. Uh, a great prayer there. Colossians 1.12 says, says giving thanks to the Father. And we could, we could talk more about this. But I just, just to give you this uh, clear trajectory in your prayer life, you pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit or in the name of the Son. That is the way that the Bible lays this out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.3, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It humbles me, Matthew 6, and amazes me, turn back to Matthew, that I could bow my head anywhere I am and not even bow my head if I'm driving or whatever and just simply say, Abba, and I have the ear and the heart of heaven. That was really... To call God your father was really an unknown thing in the Jewish mind. And to be able to just enter into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus anytime we want to, 24-7. If you wake up in the middle of the night, you pray, he's there. You start your day before the sun comes up, he's there, Abba. And you address your father who's in heaven. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. It's a great privilege to call him Abba. But lest we get too cozy with God. We've got to balance this. And Jesus says, our Father, who's in heaven? Heaven is God's throne, and the earth is his footstool. There's a vast distance from heaven to earth. Amen? And while it is true that I call God my Father, I know that God dwells in heaven. I know that God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, and I know that he is holy and powerful. He dwells in heaven. Therefore, this helps balance my approach to God, if you will. And we do need balance. There's familial love, but fundamental reverence for who God is. Spurgeon puts it this way, our Father and yet in heaven. In heaven and yet our Father. It's a beautiful thing to know that the sustainer of the universe, the all-powerful God who said, let there be light and there was light, invites me in as a son or a daughter of the king. And this is one of the ways I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I might say something like this, Father, in heaven, that's your throne. The earth is your footstool. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. You made me, you know me, you love me. I come before you in prayer right now. 
And I think it's a beautiful thing to match the familial uh, affection we have for God and comfort we have with God with marrying it together with his holiness. And I think that's how we find the balance here. You can see that Jesus gets into God's holiness in the very next petition, or the very first petition after we've addressed God. The first petition is, hallowed be your name. While it is true that God's name is holy, that's not the essence of this prayer. We might pray, holy is your name, and that's certainly true. Bless the Lord, O my soul, Psalm 103, verse 1. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Mary in Luke 149 and her Magnificat said, the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. There's no doubt that God's name is holy, but to pray hallowed be your name is to ask that God's name would be kept holy by you, your family, your church, and the world. We are praying as a petition, Lord, may your name be hallowed in the church and in the world. It's a petition. And the truth of the matter is that that doesn't always happen in the world. God's name is often not hallowed in the world. Amen? Sadly. In fact, one of the commandments is don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But thousands of times all around the world on a daily or maybe hourly basis, people dishonor the holy name of God. And so a kingdom prayer is that the name of God would be reverenced. The angels sing, Revelation 4, Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God said in Ezekiel 39, 25, now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I shall be jealous for my holy name. Our heart's highest wish is that the name of God is hallowed, starting in my heart, and moving out into the world. May your name be hallowed. You can see the kingdom orientation. The first three petitions are about God. They're not about me. And they're not even uh, singular pronouns. They're, when we get to the petitions, they're our. They're collective. They, they widen my view as I'm in my prayer closet, if you will. God's name is not to be equated with other mundane things. God is holy. The word holy means he's separate. It speaks of his aboveness. He's pure and unmixed. He's not to be brought down along with mundane things. May your name be hallowed in my life and in the world. That's a kingdom prayer, brethren. And that's a good prayer. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen all around the world. And, and certainly, we can't control all of that. But we can pray. And we can pray, Lord, let it start with me. May, may your name be hallowed. Now, you can see... After that, he says, your kingdom come. The second petition, uh, starting with the vertical things, if you will, is your kingdom or thy kingdom come. Let me give you a definition of the kingdom of God. The fundamental definition of the kingdom of God is God's people under God's rule wherever they may be. The kingdom of God doesn't have to do with geography it has to do with a mindset and a heart that is in love with the Lord and sees Jesus as the king, which is another way to say Lord or master. The kingdom of God exists today, amazingly. It started in northern Israel with 12 men and has moved to the four corners of the known world. 
The only unreached area, according to missionary organizations, is the 1040 window. Do you know, moving from northern Israel, the kingdom of God has moved all over the globe to China, to Iran, to sub-Saharan Africa, to Europe, the United States. We could go on and on. The kingdom of God has moved all around the world. Praise God. His kingdom, in one sense, has come. It hasn't been fully realized. I mentioned to you in a previous message, the kingdom is now. It's already, but not yet. That is, it will be fully realized at a future date in uh, concert with the second coming of Christ. But the kingdom of God has been spreading, and there's much to rejoice about. Sometimes we watch 15 minutes of the news and we think everything's been destroyed and, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and it's all over and no need even trying anymore. But the kingdom of God has spread. In fact, uh, those who study such things say that the majority of the world has a Christian worldview or at least a Christian expression of faith, I should say. And that would include Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Church, Pentecostalism. If you start to put all those groups together, they say that Christianity is growing faster than Islam and that it's permeating the known world. We, we've just heard about college campuses. I know, you know people are trying to see, is the revival real at Asbury and Texas A&M and wherever else it may be? Well, I think it's pretty cool that kids are singing praises to God for hours and hours and hours and confessing sin and studying their Bible. I mean, next to the other nonsense that's go, been going on college campuses, that's not a bad thing. Now, we got to be careful what we call revival, but you can see my point. The kingdom of God has made incredible strides all around the world. Praise be to God. He's answered those prayers. Your kingdom come. We're going to see kingdom parables ahead of us, and Jesus will begin to describe what's happened with the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has spread since the time that Jesus walked the earth. In one sense, his kingdom has come, but in another sense, it's still to come. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. He told the disciples, go and preach and say the kingdom is at hand. Uh, that's Matthew 10, verse 7. Flip ahead to Matthew 12, 28, just to make the point. Jesus uh, has been showing the power of God in his earthly ministry by casting out demons. And uh, here's what he says in Matthew 12, 28. He says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says in the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is here. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. Therefore, the kingdom did come. It is here. And it will be finally realized at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have a lot to celebrate because Jesus Christ said all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. And he said, go and make disciples. And the church has taken that mantle. And for the last couple thousand years, the gospel has permeated much of the known world. And the power of God has been doing its work. And I think that that is a blessing that we should not just move quickly past. Your kingdom come. And this is really what it means to express the kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, one day, 
Heaven will come down to earth, Revelation 21.2. The new Jerusalem will come down. God's space and ours will finally be married, says one writer, integrated at last. That's ahead of us. The kingdom will be fully realized. But right now, it is spreading. And one of the ways that the kingdom manifests itself is in doing the will of God. That's what disciples do. We do the will of God. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? But just as God's name is not always hallowed on the earth, God's will is not always done on the earth. Amen? I'd like to say everywhere you go, you're going to hear people just holding up. God's name is holy. But that's not your daily experience, is it? Especially if you work on a construction site. I don't think so, right? And God's will is not always done. That is what the expression of the kingdom of God should look like in a, let's say, a church community, family, etc., marriage. But it doesn't always happen. But that is our prayer. Finally, there will be a day when his will is done. And Jesus says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can get into some eschatology last time's kind of discussion here, but let me just say this, that in heaven, the will of God is always perfectly executed. Amen? Nobody is in the presence of God and says, I don't do windows or no, you know, I don't want to do that, right? His will is done in heaven. But on the earth, our prayer is that just as heaven's Heaven executes the will of God so that would happen on the earth. That's our desire. Lord, help me to do your will and, and, and may the, the, the will of the church, the will of our country, you know, our state, uh, may your will be done. Oh, that you would reign over all hearts, says Spurgeon, and all lands, whether Spurgeon rode across the pond, as we say, or wherever it might, might be. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the kingdom is manifesting itself on earth, God's will will be done. That's the bottom line. But some refuse to do the will of God, and therefore they don't belong to the kingdom. And I want you to think about that for a second, because the gospel we preach, while we preach that Jesus is Savior, we also preach that Jesus is Lord. And if you're going to call Jesus Lord, it should be your desire to execute his will. Amen? Now, we don't always hit the mark, of course, and that's where grace comes in. The Pharisees, Luke 7, verse 30, and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, and these are they that testify of me. Yet you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. There are many, many scriptures that talk about the will of God, and it should be our heart to do the will of God, but unfortunately, it's not always happening here in the world. Acts 7.51, you always resist the Holy Spirit. I heard a good analogy. You can take this for what it's worth. God has a perfect will and a permissive will in my view. Think about it this way. Let's say a ship was leaving a port and the captain is steering the ship and that ship is gonna go to that intended destination. No one else is steering it but the captain. But on that ship, let's say that you were on board, you have options during the trip. Let's say it's a week-long trip and you can 
catch some rays on the deck. You can eat the buffet and gain 10 pounds while you're <laughs> on the cruise. You can play shuffleboard. You can swim in the pool, whatever. I borrowed this analogy from someone, but, from someone, but I think it really works. So you have choices as you are on the journey, but that ship's going to get to its intended destination, whatever you do, whether you get a suntan, swim in the pool, eat the buffet, etc. Here's my point. God's great will is going to be done, and we're not, no one's ever going to thwart it. But as you ride the ship, you could decide whether or not you want to do his will on a daily basis, whether you want to really be on board with his will. And so our prayer, three vertical petitions, let's just make sure we got them, that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, and that his will be done. Now that's the first part of the prayer. Let's look at now moving from the vertical to the horizontal. That is now a focus on our needs. Verse 11 says, give us, notice it's a plural again, give us this day our daily bread. Augustine, Jerome, Erasmus said this represents communion bread or the word of God. It could not represent such mundane things as some, something to eat. That's what they said. I think they're more spiritual than a lot of us. And I think they may be trying to be more spiritual than Jesus. Because Jesus fed the 5,000, then the 4,000. He was concerned about practical needs. And I believe that he's concerned about our practical needs. And while I believe that give us our daily bread could be extended to spiritual things like God's word, and you know spiritual resources that we need. Our daily bread is just that. It's our physical needs. And in the first century, the people listening to Jesus literally probably had to pray about their daily bread. It, it was unknown for much of world history that anyone would be thinking about 401ks and retirement because people pretty much live day to day. And in fact, in other countries right now, there are people who literally pray for their daily bread and pray that God will answer that prayer. And if they get it, they're happy. They're not thinking about all the things we think about in the West. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm just saying in a first century kind of mindset here to pray for daily bread was a very real thing. This is not a prayer about excess. It's not a prayer for a shiny new vehicle or an indoor swimming pool. And one writer said, we shouldn't even think about praying for cake. It should be bread. <laughs> like, if you pray for that maple bar in Jesus' name, and maybe pray that that kid who's eyeing that maple bar doesn't take it because it belongs to you, that's an unbiblical prayer. <laughs> but on a serious note, God does care about our needs. He doesn't really care about our greeds, but he does care about our needs. There's a whole movement in professing Christianity called the prosperity gospel. And basically, the teaching is you can name and claim whatever you want. You can name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. <laughs> Let me just say that that's not going to work in Africa. That only works in the, in the West where we have so much at our fingertips that that would hook us. But that teaching is nonsense. While God does bless his people, he doesn't want us enamored in all the shiny objects. 
If we've got some shiny objects, praise his name. But that's not, that shouldn't be the orientation of our lives to build our little kingdom here. I want you to see something that maybe you haven't seen before. The us give us our daily bread, give us this day our daily bread, the bread for today, and some think even the bread for tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread is, is plural. So let's just say I've got what I need for today. Then I could pray that the Lord would supply for a family who's not doing well. And maybe I'll become the vehicle by which the Lord would have that supplied, and maybe not. Maybe I'm called just to pray for that family. But if I know someone lost their job, I know someone's living to paycheck to paycheck, maybe my prayer should be for them instead of for me. Give us our daily bread. And so I think this is good, once again, to widen out the way we think about prayer. God desires to meet our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's nothing wrong with praying for your needs and walking them out to, to not just physical but spiritual and emotional needs as well. I think God delights to meet those for us as well. And you might say, Lord, I'm, my resources, I'm feeling low today and you're not talking about that you don't have a loaf of bread in the cupboard but maybe emotionally you're spent or whatever it may be. I think you can, you can use this as a prayer for that. Look at the second thing, forgive us our debts. So the second of the three petitions on the human side, if you will, is again plural. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So when we are praying, we know we need the physical bread, but one of the things that our souls need is forgiveness. We need to receive it and give it. Give me, Lord, both the bread of heaven and of earth, that which feed my, feeds my soul and sustains my body. Give me, Lord, a forgiving heart so that I don't become, if I can put it this way, crusty. Or if I don't, that I don't have tentacles of roots of bitterness, you know, all throughout my spiritual life. Something hit me this week that some of the greatest prayers ever prayed in the Bible were prayed by godly people who were taking ownership of their people's sins. Amos 7.2 says, O oh, sovereign Lord, please forgive us, or we will not survive, for Israel is so small. Moses said, now, if you, will, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. Philemon, verse 18, Paul says, if Onesimus has wronged you in any way, or if he owes you anything, Charge it to me. From the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. A kingdom prayer is not just about forgiveness for me as much as I need it. And if I think about the word debt, the, the, the word debt is one of five New Testament words for sin. And Luke uses the word sin. Sin is a moral debt to God. I owe God my gratitude. I owe God my existence. I owe God my allegiance to his commands, but I have fallen short. And if my debt were to be piled up to heaven, it would be an astronomical debt I owe to God. But thanks be to God that he no longer keeps a record of my sin. Thanks be to God that my sin was nailed to the cross by his beloved son taking my punishment. Thanks be to God that he, 
He's no longer counting my sins against me. If he kept a record of them, I couldn't stand. Forgive us our debts. Maybe when I'd say, you know, when Job, in, early in the book of Job, Job was offering sacrifices for his children. Do you know why? Just in case they had sinned against the Lord, he was offering sacrifices on their behalf. Job was essentially saying, if my kids have sinned against you, Lord, please forgive them. If my family sinned against you, please forgive us. If my church in some way, the church has uh, offended you, please forgive us. If our nation has sinned against you, and boy, have we, please forgive us. It is a petition for the kingdom of God to permeate, and we know that the kingdom of God can only permeate if there is saving faith. Our debt is a metaphor for offense to be forgiven. Commonly used among the Jews as moral or spiritual debt to God. The guy writing this was a tax collector, or at least a former tax collector, Matthew. He knew something about debt, didn't he? Tax collectors in those days could purchase a tax franchise from the Romans. They meet a quota that the Romans required, and then they could steal from their people. Little Zacchaeus in the book of Luke was a tax collector, that wee little man. And Jesus shared with him, and he repented and talked about repaying what he had taken from others. And so we have such a, an amazing God who's forgiven our debt, and we need to be people who not only ask for forgiveness, but that we have also forgiven our debtors. Let me just say that since this is a prayer, it's not always easy to forgive those who have sinned against us. This is a prayer. So think about it this way. When you're wrestling with forgiveness, which we all will, some of you have had some pretty terrible things done to you. And it's not just that we can snap our fingers and say, I forgive him, I forgive her, I forgive them. But our prayer needs to be, Lord, would you mend my heart or move my heart in such a way that forgiveness would become a reality? And sometimes the only way I can really extend it is by you doing a work in my life. So forgive my debts and help me to forgive those who are my debtors. Some people have asked does the word debt have to do with school loans and car loans? Nice try. <laughs> no, this is talking about sin. Now, I want you to see in verses 14 and 15, which would be kind of an appendix to the prayer, it gets harder. If you forgive men, 14, for their transgressions, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And all God's people said, gulp. <laughs> Do you mean to say that my forgiveness is conditioned on my forgiving others? Well, that doesn't sound like the gospel because that sounds like something I have to do to earn salvation. But forgiveness is a free gift of God and it's, I don't know that it's conditioned on my forgiving everybody, but I will say this, I don't know how a believer could go on and on with an unforgiving heart in light of the forgiveness that we've received. If Jesus paid it all, there would be nothing so profane, says one writer, as to accept forgiveness for our sins, but leave unpardoned the sins of others. 
John Wesley was once approached by a man who was well known for his unbending nature. In a particularly prideful moment, this man boasted to Wesley, I never forgive. Wesley replied, then I hope you never sin. (laughs) Augustine called Matthew's version right here the terrible petition. For if we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors with an unforgiving heart, we're actually asking God not to forgive us, said Augustine. Spurgeon, on the other hand, called this a blessed requirement to forgive others. He said, quoting, it may be a blessing to be wronged since it affords us an opportunity for judging whether we are indeed the recipients of the pardon which comes from the throne of God. Very sweet it is to pass by other men's offenses against ourselves, for thus we learn how sweet it is to the Lord to pardon us. You know, when we forgive, it frees up our prayer life and it frees us up as well. We are not burdened by unforgiveness. Uh, Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And I think most of you, if not all of you, know 1 Peter 3, which talks about if you don't treat your spouse in the right way, your prayers will be hindered. What does that mean? I don't know exactly. I don't know if it means that we'll hit a ceiling or if we'll be hindered from praying the right way or for our spouse or whatever it means. But one thing I know, I don't want my prayers being hindered. So I don't want to be in that situation. So forgiveness really is a freeing thing, although I won't say to you it's an easy thing. It can become a spiritual heart monitor, though, in terms of where I'm at with the Lord. And it leads nicely into the final uh, petition, which is in verse 13, do not lead us into temptation. Let me just say, that the us, once again being plural, means that you could pray for other people that they would be kept from falling into temptation and sin. Amen? I heard one time a pastor say that uh, he told a guy who was struggling with lust, every time that you have a lustful thought, pray for five other men that you know struggle in the same category and turn a possible negative into a positive because you'll begin to beat the gates of heaven for others that might have the same struggle. Lead us not into temptation. Now, some people look at this and they say, does this mean that God leads people into temptation? I thought the book of James says God doesn't tempt anyone. Well, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into temptation. (laughs) We studied it in Matthew 4, three temptations, in fact. But for God, it's testing. God tests us. And you all know that he tests us for our good, right? That he might stretch us and mature us. And testing and temptation are the same Greek word. And the purpose of it and the, is really determined by the context and who's doing it. God tests us not for us to fall to sin, but for us to mature. The devil would like us to fall on our face, right? And steal our soul. What the devil intends for evil, God can use for good. And here, this may be Hebrew parallelism, which means the first phrase is explained by the second. Take a look. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it could be rendered the evil one here. So Lord, if you decide to test me, help me take the way of escape. Lord, if you put me into a test, let me not fall to the tempter. Let me 
come out the other side having honored your name. Lord, if you decide to test me, snatch me from the snare of the devil. That's the word, actually, it could mean to snatch us out. Uh, it's an aggressive word. Deliver us from evil. Snatch me from the enemy's hand. I think, once again, Spurgeon says it well. If I must be tried, Lord, deliver me from falling into evil and especially preserve me from the evil one who above all seeks my soul to destroy it, close quote. And so there you have it. The address, three petitions about God, three petitions about us. And then you can see here that there's a final, in the New American Standard, bracketed what's called a doxology. You could just say a praise. It opens with a prayer, ends with a praise. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All God's people said, amen. It's not the end of the sermon. Don't get too excited. It's about another five minutes left. Let me just explain what's going on here. <laughs> Some of you are like, we're out of here. Good. Close the Bible. We're gone. <laughs> not getting off that easy. All right. So here's the thing. In the, in the versions of the Bible that you hold in your hand, there were two major manuscript families that produced the versions. One major manuscript family called the Texas Receptus, or the Received Text, uh, they translated the King James and New King James Bible from those manuscripts. They were a limited amount. Then other manuscripts discoveries were made in Alexandria, Egypt, and other places, and we found older manuscripts that predated the ones used for the King James and New King James. And in many of those manuscripts, there are variant readings they're in the one family of manuscript, King James, New King James, and not in the other, and the others are older. So they're closer to the original autographs. What do we do? Does the fact that a manuscript is older mean that it's better? Not necessarily. So you do a little bit more homework and you ask the question, why is this in one version, not the other? Why is it bracketed in the New American Standard, in the King James, New King James, not in the NIV? Sometimes the verses uh, in some uh, cases like this are just completely missing. Is it, is it a conspiracy theory? Go on the internet and you'll find out that people are saying, it's a conspiracy. I told you the NIV was the not inspired version. <laughs> people playing games in smoky rooms, wearing hoods. Take that verse out. <laughs> no, that's not what's going on. It's called a variant reading. It's one, in one manuscript and not the other. And you say, well, which one's correct? We don't know for sure here because let me just say that when the early church fathers quote the Lord's Prayer, they omit this in most of the early fathers. It's not there. However, in an ancient document called the Didache, which was written at the end of the first century, so right pretty much at the end of the events of the New Testament, if you will, it is there in this early church manual. It's in some manuscripts and not in others. And, and in some various languages, it's there and not there. What do we do with that? Was it put in by a well-meaning scribe who thought, we can't end with snatch me from evil. <laughs> let's, let's get a praise in there. Did he write it in the margin and somehow it migrated into the Bible text as it was hand copied? I don't know for sure. But I will tell you this, and we're, we're gonna end with this. I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles 29. Whether this is original or not, I think is probably irrelevant because this is biblical. We're going to 1 Chronicles. First five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. First Chronicles twenty nine, and David has been uh, donating towards the cause of the temple, and uh, he's encouraged others to donate as well. There are resources to build the glorious temple. And this is First Chronicles 29. We pick it up in verse 9. Then the people, 29 of First Chronicles, rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion. That's kingdom language right there, right? O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Sounds a lot like the end of Matthew 6, 13 is 1 Chronicles 29, 11, or it sounds very familiar. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great, to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. As Pastor Michael went on for a good hour, um, I do believe that this deserves our attention. I believe that this is an important time for our fellowship as we try to understand the kingdom of God in our preaching, our prayer life, our pursuits. And Lord, you're teaching us what it looks like to be the people of God and how we should pray. And thank you, Jesus, that you supplied this prayer. Thank you, Father, for giving your son as the master teacher. There's probably so much more we could have learned in this short time together, but I pray what we have learned will apply as we pray this week. I pray that as your people, we may even sit in this devotionally for the week and see how you might direct us, O oh Lord. Lest we forget it is a prayer and lest we forget it is a kingdom prayer. With your heart bowed, if you've not met the king, this would be a wonderful time to trust him as your Lord and your Savior. Believing who he is, what he did for you at the cross and through the resurrection. You don't have to have perfect words, but ask him to be your king and to save you. If you do that right now, he will honor any genuine request. Maybe you're a prodigal. Maybe you've gotten away from kingdom business and you've become maybe a bit consumed with self and maybe you've just been wayward. It's a great time. It's always a great time to come back to the king and if you've been walking with the Lord and you're excited about your faith and there's good things going on, I pray that this prayer will be just another, another layer for you to think about kingdom realities, pray them, pursue them, preach them, and do your best to honor the king. Thank you, Father. We love you and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.